Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. And this season I am covering cases from Venice, Italy. And tonight I have a great episode to share with y'all. We will be getting into the tragic history of the San Servolo Island, also known as the Island of the Mad. Now, the island has served many purposes over the years, but what makes the island infamous was the housing of an insane asylum, hence Island of the Mad. But before we get into the horrible going-ons that plagued the island, we're going to discuss when the island was found. The island sits southeast of historic Venice in a prime location for isolation, but also easy access. It's only about a 10-minute boat ride from San Servolo Island to Piazza San Marco, and it was the original home to the Venetian Calbana family which started, they owned it from around 810 onward. And they turned the island into a monastery, or they built a monastery for Benedictine monks. And the monks lived on the island for about 500 years, which is a lot of years. I couldn't even begin to tell you what monks do besides pray But living on an island is, it doesn't sound that fun. A, you really got to have a good boat to transport you to the main island or wherever you need to go. Two, you can't really leave the island if there's rough waves or a storm going on or if there's a hole in your boat or if you're drunk. Sailing drunk does not sound fun. So it doesn't sound very convenient. But also, what are you doing on this island besides praying, eating, shitting? I don't... Are they playing that game where with the stick and the... I don't even know what that's called, where it looks like a hula hoop, but it rolls on the ground and you hit it with a stick to keep it going. Are they playing that? Are monks doing that? Are they doing puppet shows? Are monks sitting around a table and creating their own little puppets and then putting on shows? Are they playing dominoes, marbles, cards? When were cards created? That's a good question. I'm going to have to look that up. I just don't know what you would do. Thumb wars? Arm wrestling? Mud wrestling? Olive oil wrestling? What are they doing? You can only pray so often. Anyway, Benedictine monks on this island for 500 years. 
obviously not the same monks, but you know, that's the other thing. Where are they transferring these monks from? It's not like women are living on this island and they're, they can't be having sex. So who's supplying all these monks? Where are they popping out of? Benedictines or black monks due to their black habits, meaning their religious clothing. They were a religious order of the Catholic Church who followed the rule of St. Benedictine. The island was to create a community environment to establish due order, foster an understanding of the relationship or relational nature of human beings, and to provide a spiritual father to support and strengthen an individual's spiritual growth. Thank you, Wikipedia, for that. Understanding of human beings is funny because they're stuck, again, on an island with only other monks. It's not a diverse crowd. And I'm sure these monks are all Italian, and I'm sure these monks are all white and come from similar backgrounds. The founder was Benedict of Nursia in the 6th century. Just so you know. And so, yeah, the study of human beings, it's like, okay, well, where are you meeting other human beings? You're stuck on an island. I mean, Benedictine monks in general, sure, because they're, they've got monasteries all over Italy, and this one just happens to be on an island, but these monks on San Servolo, I really don't know what they're doing on this island. I don't get it. Fishing, I guess. Fishing and praying. One of the earliest settlements in the Lagoon of Venice was called Metamalcum, and it acted as a port for mainland towns. If you remember back to the episode where I talk a lot about the doges of Venice in the 9th century, I discuss how an exiled doge, Oberelio, tried to come back and take control again, but Doge Giovanni Parcipazio wasn't going to entertain that in any way, shape, or form, so he destroyed the town that Oberelio was chilling at and had support from. That's the town. The town that Oberelio was hanging at that the current reigning Doge destroyed in the 9th century that is the town Metamalcum. The settlement, after it was destroyed, the settlement still continued after that, obviously, but they had lost a lot due to the battle. Also, two convents of nuns that inhabited that town, St. Leone and Basso, they were forced to flee because of a... I mean, they lost a lot during the battle, but then they ended up having to flee because of a horrible sea quake in 1109. And so by 1116, the town of Metamalcum was submerged due to relentless storm surges, which is giving 
very much Atlantis. A town underwater because of horrible sea shit. It's giving Atlantis. Maybe this is what Atlantis... Well, I'm sure the lure of Atlantis happened long before this, because this is 1116, but it could be maybe this is part of that lure. A sea quake, by the way, is just an earthquake that happens underwater, but of course that can lead to other devastating events like tsunamis. And weirdly enough, or I guess maybe not so weird, I am intrigued by natural disasters. I love a good natural disaster movie. Titanic, Poseidon, The Impossible, Twister, Volcano, Bodies, 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 if we're going more recent, etc. Fun fact about Twister, I believe Twister was the first movie to ever be sold as a DVD. Isn't that fascinating? Out of any of the movies they could have come up with, Twister. The nuns of St. Leone and Basso fled to the island of San Servolo. And see, it brought it all back. Brought it back. The town of Metamalcum is lost. As I was saying, it's underwater. But some residents of the area... Say you can see the ruins whenever the sea is extremely calm and probably low tide. Take your binoculars out. Look for that crumbled rock, maybe a broken pillar of some sort, but you may be able to see Minamalkum. Anyway, back to San Servolo. It's the 1100s. And the Benedictine monks have now been joined by the nuns. Remember, they fled from the other town that's now submerged. Monks and nuns living together in harmony when all of that changed, when the Fire Nation attacked. Whenever I hear the word harmony, I immediately think of Avatar The Last Airbender. But all of that changed when the Turkish invaded Crete, which was ruled by Venice at the time, Crete was, and I'm sure they eventually figured out that ruling a nation, city, island, etc. from thousands of miles away, it's not easy, it's hard. And Crete is technically closer to Turkey than it is Venice, Italy, so it makes it even more difficult especially when Turkey wants to lay claim to that island. So, Turkey first attacked in 1645 with 60,000 troops and 400 ships. So they must have really wanted Crete, because the siege lasted 21 days. And I could never be in the military, because I do not have the patience for that. After a month maybe even less, I'd be like, okay, this shit ain't worth it. Let's go home. I barely have enough patience to wait for a fucking bagel at a coffee shop. I could not imagine a siege lasting 21 years. Years. 
It's insane. I feel bad for all those troops. I'm sure they were hungry and cold and tired and just wanted to go home, but you didn't really have that option back then. And you don't really have that option today. If you abandon post, you get fucking dishonorably discharged. I don't really know the rules behind that, but everyone makes it out to be such a horrible thing. But I'm like, I don't blame these people. They want to go home, see their mother, let them go home. So during this battle for Crete, or during the siege, 117,000 Turkish troops died and 30,000 Cretans and Venetians lost their lives. But in the end, Turkey did win. Again, they have an astronomical amount of troops attacking. They're closer. Venetians, yes, they have a kick-ass navy, but I don't think their land battle was that good. However, a huge number of Cretans fled from the Ottoman government because otherwise you would have become a prisoner. Others became serfs or you were taxed higher or had your property property seized or all of the above. And if you didn't flee to other like cities or regions, a lot of people did flee like a lot of people led Crete, left Crete, but a group of a decent amount of other people just fled to the mountains of Crete and hid in the mountains so they weren't attacked by the Ottoman government or had to go through that bullshit. Basically, times were not good. They needed to dump some tea in the Mediterranean or whatever Turkish people drank, probably coffee, to get out of this because, long story short, There were uprises against the Ottoman government and the Turkish people for taking over Crete because of how shitty the Cretans were being treated. And 200 and some odd years later, in 1898, Crete became its own Grecian Republic. All of this to say that the nuns on Crete fled to San Servolo to escape the Ottoman government. The Ottoman government was turning the churches on Crete into mosques. So the nuns were fleeing fleeing to San Servolo. Little by little, the nuns left San Servolo Island and headed to other convents. And the monks on San Servolo headed to other monasteries. And the San Servolo Island was designated as a military hospital in 1716 by the Republic of Venice for the continued war against Turkey. So yes, that war lasted that long. It was an obscenely long war. I will never really understand war. I don't support it. Everyone needs to calm down. Eat a Snickers bar. This puts us approaching the Napoleonic reign over Venice. 
It's kind of tragic since Venice had such a thriving republic in Europe for like 1,100 years. But France won out, made an agreement with Austria that they could have Venice if France could have the Netherlands. But basically, Venice is now in the hands of Austria because France was like, here, take them, we want Netherlands instead. And the era, and because of that, the era of the doges came to an end, and Napoleon destroyed Venetian arsenals and navy, which again was once the greatest navy in Europe. And during Napoleon's rule in 1797, he started sending mentally ill men of Venice to San Servolo, which at this time was a military hospital. So it was run by the order of Fatebenefratelli, who also ran a hospital in Rome since the 1500s. Interesting fact, that hospital in Rome during the Holocaust, the one that was opened in the 1500s, but during the Holocaust, that hospital would hide Jewish escapees by diagnosing them with a fake disease called Syndrome K. And it was explained as a deadly disease called Koch disease, I believe, or or Keeps disease or something. It starts with a K, but it was all fake and was to elude Nazis asking questions. So I thought that was a interesting fact. But to backtrack, When Austrians took over Venice in 1798, the military hospital started taking in mentally ill women as well. So for the next five to 10 years, the hospital's patients list grew to 570 people, 360 war casualties, but 210 mental patients. As time went on, war patients declined and the mental patients grew. And that's how the island became an insane asylum. A slow transition from war, hospital, military hospital into a mental institution. And there isn't a ton of information about San Servolo, specifically during the 250 years it acted as an insane asylum. Other Italian asylums like Magdalena, uh, which is near Naples, and Mombello in Lombardy, they're more infamous. So I'm going to talk about Italian asylums in general because San Servolo still fits with every the things that happen in San or on San Servolo happened in these other infamous Italian insane asylums. It was not this wonderful location that people thrived at, you know. It still had its issues and it went through the same or similar issues that other Insane asylum went insane asylums went through in Italy and honestly 
all over the world. On San Servolo, as more women were being committed, they felt the need to separate the men and the women into their own housing. So around 200,000 patients stayed at San Servolo over the years, most of whom did die on the island. San Servolo was known for electric shock therapy and lobotomies. And because it was an island, the patients suffered from severe isolation. But before we get into all of that, we're going to take a very short break. I'll be back with the treatment for mental patients. We are back. So the first hospitals that treated mental health disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depressive disorder were actually built in the Middle East in the ninth century. The first being in Baghdad, which is now the capital of Iraq. Those hospitals weren't solely for psychiatric care, but they were the first to have wards dedicated to mental health. Eventually, these techniques traveled west to Europe, where hospitals like Bicetra Hospital in France and York Retreat in England began treating mentally ill patients. These were all private institutions, so they were focused on compassionate treatment that would rehabilitate patients, or at least that's the goal, even if they were living behind bars. Institutes like these were still pretty rare until the 1800s when public asylums began popping up in Britain. This is when asylums began to go downhill because more and more people were being sent to these places and the treatment became brutal and focused on containment and restraint. Madness, lunacy, and insanity became buzzwords to use against the mentally ill. And I do have to say, one of my favorite TV moments ever was season two of American Horror Story with the religious mental asylum. Lily Rabe deserves an Emmy for her work that season. I am obsessed. Her portrayal, or I mean, yes, her portrayal of that nun, that's also the devil, is brilliant. But just seeing that switch from like the first couple few episodes where she's this innocent, sweet, blonde, little bang girl into the devil, that switch is so iconic. I'm obsessed with it. Love it. And one day, mark my words, I will write an opera that 
takes place in a church. And we'll have to see if that nun is having schizophrenia or if she's possessed by the devil. You heard it here first. That opera will be eventually written. Anyway, the original theory behind mental illness was, of course, the devil, but some even thought that infected parts of the body led to mental illness, but we will get into that a little bit later. Some common horrific practices in insane asylums were hydrotherapy, shock therapies, electroshock therapy, lobotomies, restraint, unnecessary surgeries and injections, uh, and medications, of course. All these quote-unquote treatments were tried to help cure patients, but they all had high risk factors, and many people died from these experiments. Other practices were like the swinging chair and pyrotherapy, etc. More out-of-the-box stuff that didn't necessarily catch on, but were still tried and experimented on humans. So we're going to break some of this down. We're going to start with hydrotherapy, which honestly, just the name of that sounds absolutely lovely. I, people who know me, know I love long, warm, hot showers. It is the most calming feeling for me and brings me so much peace. Every morning, I just sit there in the shower, warm water, darkness. It is the most peaceful, relaxing I can have all my thoughts before the day begins. It gets me right in the right mindset. It is definitely therapy, hydrotherapy. However, that's not what was happening in these institutes. So the bath of surprise was similar to a dunk tank where the victim would be unsuspectedly dropped into ice cold water And it was deemed so effective, it led to hydrotherapy. So the photo I saw, and of course I'll post photos on Instagram and Twitter and social media so you guys can have a better visual. But the Bath of Surprise, from my understanding, was built on a bridge over like a pond. And people who worked at these institutes would lure this patient across the bridge. And as they stepped onto like the middle part of the bridge, someone at the end of the bridge would pull a lever and the whole middle part of the bridge would fall in and the patient would drop into this ice cold pond, bath, whatever you want to call it. And that was called bath of surprise, hydrotherapy. I guess that's only a surprise if you do it once because then the patient knows, but 
Yeah, I don't know what the goal of that was. To shock him? Out of acting a certain way? I don't know. But that whole incident led to what we now know as hydrotherapy, where a patient would be restrained, usually mummified, meaning like wet cloth would be wrapped around a patient, and then they would spray the patient with water, or they would put the patient in a bath and dunk their heads. So the patient can't move because they're wrapped with wet cloths and like in a mummified position. And then people working there would either dunk their heads in this bathtub over and over and over again, or they'd spray them with some kind of water hose. Another version of this would be restraining a patient to the tub and then just leaving them in the tub for hours or even days. And they would do this with cold water or hot water, depending on what they were trying to treat. Cold water was used to treat manic depressive symptoms or anything that agitated the victim. Another riff on this were spraying the patient, like I was saying, either in the mummified version or the patient would be restrained to a shower stall and sprayed with hot or cold water like a fire hose. And I've never been sprayed by a fire hose, but when I was very young, four maybe, my parents played mud volleyball. And after after the tournament was over, everyone was so caked in mud that the only way to get it off quickly was with a fire hose and I don't remember much of that event but I do remember watching people get belted with water over and over and over and it honestly did not look fun that's the cheerful version of that obviously we've all seen images and stuff in the south in the 60s of minorities and specifically black people being sprayed by fire hoses by firemen and police and such and it's horrific to watch and i can only imagine these patients in this insane asylum feeling this similarly they're strapped in a shower stall not being able to move and just having this fire hose beat their back usually their back for who knows how long, however the person wanted to keep it on. It looks horrible. It sounds horrible. I feel bad for these people. Another very popular treatment was confinement and restraint. So the most common was definitely leather straps and straight jackets. But as I was saying, mummification and chains were also frequently used. Another, which is, which I didn't necessarily hear of, but makes sense, and I've seen pictures without knowing the name of it. Another was the Utica crib. 
When we think crib, we think of baby's beds with the barred walls. And the Utica crib is similar. However, it had a caged lid as well. And y'all, I just saw Barbarian, the horror movie, in theaters. <laughs> they had cages in the tunnels and a caged lid on a hole that imprisoned people. And it was so creepy. I wouldn't say small spaces scare me necessarily, but my biggest fear is definitely not being able to move. So being trapped in a Utica crib would, would have made me insane. If I wasn't insane going into the crib, I would definitely be insane after. My high school required us to do a whole unit during gym of wrestling. And that shit is still PTSD. Let me tell you, the women didn't have to do it. It was only the men. The women got to do gymnastics and I never got to do gymnastics and I'm still bitter. Part of it. I think it's because my high school won state like 11 years in a row for wrestling, which is insane. And so we had like a whole wrestling room with padded floors and stuff, which we're talking about asylum. We'll get into padded rooms later, but I was seemingly always paired with someone on the wrestling team during gym and I didn't want to be there anyway. And then I had to wrestle this person, this man, and be pinned down. And it was the most uncomfortable. I hated every second of it. I do not like, like, I have to have freedom. I cannot be pinned down. It drives me insane. The Utica crib was usually 18 inches deep and six feet long by six feet wide. So six feet long, three feet wide. Back then, most people would fit in that. What gets me is the 18 inches deep. 18 inches. Basically, it's a coffin with slatted walls and a lid. Even though it was supposedly used to calm patients. And it would cause so much stress for patients, for some patients, I guess, that there would be deaths. People would die in these cribs. And eventually the crib did lose favor for being cruel and unusual, but with no scientific backing. However, it would be replaced with something that wasn't much better and that would be the padded room that we all know. I'm trying to think of the most famous padded room, but the only thing I can think of is the movie Final Destination 2. Because they go and visit the woman who survived the first movie because she purposely lives in a padded room in the second movie so she 
doesn't get killed. Next up, we have surgery. And surgery started with the idea that, again, infected areas led to mental illness. So let's say like you having rotted teeth. The doctor would pull your rotted teeth thinking that was the culprit. But of course, we now know that's not true. And so obviously pulling these rotted teeth didn't improve the patient. So then the doctor would be like, okay, well, maybe it's the blood that's infected. And so even though the tooth is gone or teeth are gone, the blood, it got into the body or through the saliva. And that traveled to whatever other part of the body. But because of that, the doctor then would remove the tonsils. The tonsils had to go. When that didn't work, the doctor would just continue removing parts of the body. Parts of the small intestine would go. Other organs would be removed. For women specifically, doctors would remove their uterus, ovaries, or even lesions on the cervix or vaginal wall. Like surgery happy and because they're in an institution there's no one checking these doctors they really got away with anything they literally got away with murder another treatment quote-unquote was pyrotherapy which was the act of inducing a fever to help with symptoms so to cause an artificial fever it initially started with just giving patients like hot baths, like hydrotherapy in a way, or warm air and heavy blankets. However, it eventually led to malariotherapy and that means the causative agent of malaria was injected into a patient to produce intense fevers. And an anti-malaria drug would be used to control the fever. Which is just insane. Yes, we now know that if you inject parts of the disease, look, I'm not scientific enough to really explain this but if you inject part of the disease it helps to cure certain diseases or prevent them i should say but as most of us experienced you do get symptoms like the covid shots most people didn't feel great afterwards or the monkeypox vaccine sore arm But for this, they were injecting a specific dose of malaria to cause a fever, hoping that that would cure mental illness, I guess. And then an anti-malaria drug would be used to 
calm the fever down. So I guess that the patients wouldn't get full-blown malaria. And this type of treatment actually led to psychiatrist Julius Wagner Urig to win the 1927 Nobel Prize for Medicine. Wild. We don't even know the outcome of these, again, quote-unquote treatments, and these doctors are winning Nobel Prizes for them. It's insane. Another version of this pyrotherapy is insulin shock therapy where a victim would be injected with a large dose of insulin to produce a coma that could last days or they would cause a daily coma and would do it every day for several weeks I can't even imagine what going through one coma would do to my body, let alone being in, having a coma every day for weeks on end. That too would make me go insane. Similarly, Deep sleep therapy was a treatment where the patient would be given drugs to keep them unconscious for days to weeks. So, yeah, very similar. Um, Cardizol shock therapy was the injection of, bear with me, pentilinetrazole, whatever that drug is. Uh, Cardizol shock therapy, uh, was the injection of that to induce seizures as a form of treatment. And these all funder, these all fall under the title of shock therapy. So fevers, comas, seizures, unconsciousness, they're all being induced just to solve some form of mental illness, even though I'm sure it's doing far more harm than it is good. If it does any good, I don't see the benefit. These shock treatments or shock therapies led to the overly popular electroshock or electroconvulsive therapy since it was an easier form of treatment that showed similar results to the other shock therapies. Typically, 70 to 120 volts were applied externally to the head for at most 6 seconds, anywhere between, I believe, 0.5 seconds to 6 seconds to induce a seizure. About 1% of the electrical current crosses through the skull into the brain, and the skull is 100 times higher than skin when it comes to resistance 
to electric currents. Electroshock had been used on animals for a while, but Italian professor Ugo Sorletti, an assistant Lucio Bini, developed the idea to use this therapy as a substitute for metrazole. And in 1938, they experimented on a human for the first time who is suffering from delusions, whatever delusions means. They viewed retrograde amnesia as a positive side effect, and they were nominated for a Nobel Prize for their work, an ECT device. Another fucking Nobel Prize nominated doctor for an unfinished experiment. I don't have to say that. This is basically an experiment, and they're treating it as such. Yes, they technically treat it on animals, but they don't know the ultimate side effects, and they don't know if what they're doing is actually curing anybody. We obviously know now that it's not curing people, but I don't understand giving Nobel Prize nominations out willy-nilly like this. The ECT device eventually declined because of the advancement of drugs, which is a whole other can of worms that we are not going to get into, but ECT is still used today in very small doses. ECT meaning electroconvulsive therapy. In small doses, 0.5 milliseconds instead of the common 1.5 milliseconds. Obviously, probably the most common use for ECT devices is when governments were killing sentencing people to death and killing them by the electro the electric chair we see them put the device on people's temples which is probably the most common way they used it but they used to also put part of the device on one temple and part of the device on the back of the head that was another form of using it but yeah the most common are what we all know of the electric shock Therapy is when killing someone, not to induce a seizure. Or in movies where they're torturing people, that too. Probably the most well known treatment and surgery in asylums was the lobotomy. The surgery causes most of the connections to and from the prefrontal cortex to be severed. And due to the success of ECT, it spurred doctors to try more drastic forms of treatment like lobotomies. Lobotomies were first called ice pick lobotomy because they actually used ice picks for the procedure which 
sounds terrifying. I don't know how or where the first lobotomies were given. Like, did they just really just shove an ice pick in your forehead? Or was there more nuance to it? I'm not sure. But eventually, they made an ice pick-like tool called Leucotome, something like that. There were two versions of this tool. One was steered into the brain through a small hole in the skull, and then a plunger on the back of the device sends a wire loop or a metal strip into the brain. It is then rotated, cutting a core part of the brain tissue. This was used by Nobel Prize-winning neurologist Igas Moniz. And again, this is just an example about how fucked up many major awards are. We've all seen political games at the Oscars where a movie wins just because they didn't want to award a specific movie, even if it's better. Cough, cough. Brokeback Mountain. Same goes with restaurants, though. Getting Michelin stars and people winning a Michelin star or keeping a Michelin star even if they don't deserve it. It's all politics. And I have to imagine the same is going on with Nobel Prizes because this now is just three psychiatrists or doctors in this story alone. I'm sure there are more that were nominated or won. The other lobotomy tool more represented an ice pick. And it was just a pointed shaft that was passed through the tear duct under the eyelid and against the top of the eye socket. A mallet was used to drive the instrument through the thin layer of bone and into the brain to a depth of five centimeters. This tool was updated to be more durable and was eventually called an orbitoclast. And some notable lobotomy cases are Rosemary Kennedy, sister of JFK. She was given a lobotomy in 1941 that left her incapacitated and institutionalized for the rest of her life. Joseph Hasid, he was a Polish violinist and composer who died at 26 after a lobotomy for schizophrenia. Tennessee Williams's older sister, Rose, received a lobotomy, and similar to Rosemary Kennedy, she was incapacitated for the rest of her life, and Tennessee used her life as inspiration for many of his plays. And after x-rays were examined of Ava Perone, neurosurgeons concluded that Ava had a lobotomy for pain and anxiety just months before her death. So those are the main treatments you see in, or that you saw in insane asylums. 
there were obviously other experiments going on and other things that people tried, but those were the most common quote unquote treatments. In Italy, asylum reform began taking place in the 1970s. The revolution began with an asylum in Gorizia, Italy, which is on the border of Slovenia, just northeast of Venice. A new director took over the asylum and he wanted major change. So he assembled a team of physicians and reformers to help change what mental institutions could achieve. It became more of a community. Patients weren't restrained. They could sleep when they wanted. They socialized with each other and took day trips. Things seemed to be a lot better under this new director, but the major question still remained at the time. Do they continue to reform these asylums or do they just permanently close them? Gorizia's asylum became a shining example of what could be so people flocked to see the major changes being enacted at this asylum. Slowly but surely, other Italian cities followed suit. And this was all possible with the help of the Italian Law 180, which is the Mental Health Act of 1978, which signified a large reform of the psychiatric system in Italy that was fully realized by 1998. 1998 marked the very end of the state psychiatric hospital system in Italy, and it spurred other European cities to make reforms, as well as the United States. San Servolo, our island in Venice, was part of the large-scale shutdown. Simultaneously, the Italian government created the Institute for the Study of Social and Cultural Marginalization. And that institution preserved documents from asylums. And San Servolo was one of those asylums that had documentation saved so that they would later be able to use the documentations for a museum called, quote, the Museum of Madness. In 1995, Venice International University took over the island of San Servolo and helped with the renovations for the island. Since 2012, Ca Foscari International College has called the island their home. And the Museum of Madness on the island of San Servolo is divided into nine sections, laboratory, ambulatory, didacted products, sickness therapies, straitjackets, the sick, lodging, pharmacy, and the anatomical theater. The museum also has 
a range of instruments that were used to treat and restrain victims. And the positive is that it also shows where we've come since then in the therapy we use today for treatments such as music therapy, which was first used at San Cervolo by hospital director Cesar Vigna, who was a very close friend of Italian composer Giuseppe Verdi. And uh, Verdi wrote a letter to the new director, quote, although I am not a psychologist, I nevertheless see the utmost importance of your studies and the interest they can bring to our art, not only as regards to medicine, but also as regards aesthetically and criticism, which certainly need a better and more rational direction, unquote. Verdi has such good music, y'all. I'm not joking. Go take a listen. I just saw Matteo Matteo Lane live. His comedy is hilarious. And he's a big Verdi fan. So if you can't take my word for it, take it from stand-up comedian Matteo Lane. Go listen to Verdi. Anyway... Today you can visit the island by taking the ferry from San Zaccaria, the church I discussed a few episodes ago, to San Servolo. You can go to the museum. I believe you can rent out a room on the island. You can walk the grounds, check out the church. And if you stay the night, you may encounter some patients that never had the chance to check out. So quick story I found. There was a woman working in Venice for a summer when her partner decided to join her for a week. She thought it would be fun to get off the main island for a couple days and book a hotel on San Cervolo. However, she didn't know that the island once was a monastery, military hospital, and insane asylum. While the couple were checking to their room and opening the door to their room, they heard a loud slamming of a door nearby, but they simply brushed it off as other kids and other people in the building. However, when they got to the door and opened the door, the moment they stepped inside to their bedroom, the woman felt an icy hand reach into her body and grab her spine. She felt paralyzed and could hear ringing, and then suddenly the feeling went away. It had only been a couple seconds, but she felt as if it lasted ages. She would get waves of chills throughout the night and became very melancholy Her dreams turned into nightmares with someone screaming and crying and never being able to save a friend from pain. So in the morning, she called said friend and the friend responded with, quote, I've been up all night crying. I had a horrible ache in my stomach, unquote. And when she hung up and went about her day, she never felt strange 
and the rest of her time on the island was perfectly lovely, and she enjoyed her trip with her significant other. And I don't think he felt or saw anything. It all happened to the woman staying in this hotel room. And it's no surprise that after centuries of death on this island that it would be haunted, especially with 250 years of unjust death. The island has been restored and is kept up, and from what I can see, it looks stunning to visit. But when you're there, make sure you're keeping a lookout for lingering spirits. Maybe the icy cold feeling the woman felt was a patient being plunged into water for hydrotherapy or her feeling paralyzed came from the many people restrained who knows but be aware and remember the thousands of people who stood there before you and to that thank you all so much for listening i will of course be posting photos related to this evening story on instagram and twitter follow the socials for photos updates and guest info please 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 send me your paranormal experiences or send someone else's you know or tell them to email it to haunted hometowns podcast at gmail.com you can slide into my dms with your case could be anything from chewing gum and turning into blueberry to a cow transforming into a man, then into a werewolf. Let me know. Please click that follow and or subscribe button so you won't miss out on another great Venice case next Friday because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme music is by Tyer. Follow him on Instagram at QueerPopStar and listen to his own personal music on Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you stream music at T-H-A-I-R. The artwork is by the amazing Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from Wikipedia, cvltnationnature.com far out magazine visit venezia dark tourism and the travel agent next door